It's a blessing to be able to worship with your church family today, and I'm going to be talking on the topic of the resurrection, which we celebrated last week on Resurrection Sunday, but we're going to look at it from a different angle this week. Uh, The title of this message uh, is the question that Jesus asked to Martha, do you believe this? And we're going to work through this passage here in John 11. Uh, If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open there, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. You can follow along in whatever version you have. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe." But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now, this topic of resurrection is one that is still lingering in my heart uh, even this week, and I've been pondering on it throughout the week. On a personal level, I had a, a situation that happened um, within the last couple of weeks that has caused me to think an awful lot about death and resurrection. Uh, my, my grandmother, uh, who has struggled with dementia for many years, um, was living in Tucson, Arizona, and she just died. And we had her memorial service uh, in Michigan. Um, they transported her body back to Michigan. We had her memorial service on Good Friday. And this is a, a woman who... Uh, was, was not a Christian when she raised my mother and, and her other children. So my mom was not raised in a Christian home. But my grandparents became believers in Christ in their early 40s. And this was in the, the early 1970s. And so right before I was born, they became Christians. Very sound, very solid Bible-believing Christians. And so all of my life, I had, peop- I had these examples of these godly grandparents 
who uh, invested in my life and invested in the lives of many others. My grandfather became an elder in their church, and uh, he was one of the most evangelistic people that I'd ever uh, met in my life. You know, he's so evangelistic that it's uncomfortable. I don't know if you've ever met anybody like that, but he, he never met a stranger, and he could engage absolutely anyone in conversation. And I mean, you could just be at a restaurant, and, and he would just ask somebody, you know, how's your week been going? And, and oh, not too good. Well, you know, you can look to the Lord for that. You do know the Lord, don't you? Oh, Grandpa, not again. Here we go. You know, no, but that, he's just a great example of just sharing Jesus with everybody, everywhere he went. And uh, my grandmother loved the Lord, and and it was an irony, I think, to have her memorial service happen on Good Friday and, and just to have this juxtaposition of the struggle of death and resurrection. Uh, we had this sense of loss, you know, that she's, she's died and she's not with us now, but also this amazing sense of hope uh, and gratitude and thankfulness of knowing that she's in Christ and that she's now with Christ. And so there's this, this sense when a believer dies, there's this sense that we have of, of both a sense of loss and a sense of longing, but also this tremendous sense of thankfulness and joy that we feel at the same time uh, of knowing that this person is now whole and they're complete and they are with Christ. And, and we have this perspective because of what we studied last week, right? Right? The, the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ that conquered death, that conquered the grave, this example that we have of knowing that Christ is risen, and because Christ has risen, we also will rise. But, but when we put ourselves into the context of Scripture, we read Scripture, it's important for us to, to step back sometimes and remember that these people who are living in this passage and experiencing what's being talked about here, they don't have the hindsight that we do. They don't have the, the written Scripture, the New Testament for us to, that, that we do, that we can look back on. They don't have Paul's teachings on the resurrection, right? They, so, so it's just fascinating when you think about Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus who is ill and then dies, they, they've not seen Jesus rise from the dead. They, they've not seen anybody rise from the dead, right? And so in their experience, this is fatal, this is final. And it's interesting the phrase that Jesus makes here where he says that the reason that this was allowed was because it was for the glory of God. And I think one thing that's important for us to keep in mind is that every situation that we find ourselves in, no matter how difficult, no matter how painful, is ultimately for the glory of God. And God will glorify Himself in every situation without exception. Even the terrible things, even the horrible things, even the things that we would look at and say, it wasn't supposed to go down like that. God has a plan to redeem all things. I just want to go ahead and say that again. God has a plan to redeem all things. It doesn't mean that all things are good. They're not good. 
There are so many situations that are horrible and they're terrible in themselves. That cancer diagnosis is not good. That broken relationship is not good. That job that was terminated it wasn't good. That tragic car accident was not good. I don't think as Christians we should have a glib view of those things. We live in a fallen, broken world. These things were not God's original intent. This is not what God intended to have happen. And yet, in the midst of all of that, God never allows any difficulty and He never allows any struggle in your life that He does not fully intend to redeem for three purposes. Number one, His glory. Number two, your ultimate good. And number three, the good of others. Every tragedy, every difficulty, every struggle, every pain, God fully intends to restore and redeem for His glory, your ultimate good, and the good of others. It may not feel like it at the time. It may feel as though Jesus isn't showing up. It may feel as though things are dark and they're hopeless. It's not the end of the story. It's a chapter. It's a painful chapter. It's a difficult chapter. It's not the end of the story. Let's continue to read. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now... I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Man, this, isn't this the centrality of the gospel? Isn't this the thing that sets us apart from everyone else in the world who lives without hope? It comes down to this question, doesn't it? Do you believe this? It's one thing to say that you believe it. It's one thing to acquiesce to it mentally and intellectually. Oh yes, I believe in the resurrection. I believe that we'll all rise again in the last day. But is it something that you really believe in the core of your being so deeply that it has defined every aspect of your life and that even in that moment when all hope is gone, when your brother has been dead for four days, and there is no hope, there is no medical cure, there is nothing that anyone can do to turn this situation around, is there a sense that you have such an undying hope 
in the reality of the risen Christ that it changes everything for you? This is a question that Jesus asks not only to Martha here in this passage, but He asks us as well. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Questions Jesus Asks. And, and I, as I went through that book, I had this presupposition or the starting point that if Jesus would bother to ask a question and then have it recorded by the Holy Spirit in Scripture, there must be an application for us as well. You know, certainly we want to understand the context of who is being asked the question in the New Testament and, and what that question meant for them and the relevance of their situation. But there's an application for us as well. Do we believe this? Do we believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And I just want to comment for a minute here on Martha because if you've been around Christian circles for any amount of time, you know that Martha kind of gets criticized sometimes, right? Because Mary's the one who sits at Jesus' feet and Martha's the one scurrying around the house, kind of being the type A personality, cleaning up everything and making the meals and she's stressed out and she's frustrated with her sister who's not helping. And you know, Martha sometimes is, is given as an example of what not to do and Mary's given as an example of what to do, you know, sitting and gazing into the face of Jesus. And uh, you know, I want to just suggest, I think, I think maybe we're too hard on Martha. Um, the scripture tells us very definitively in this passage that Jesus loved Martha. Now, he loved Mary and he loved Lazarus, but he also loved Martha. It wasn't like Jesus looked at her like, oh no, her again. We have to put up with Martha. No, Jesus loved Martha. And even in this context, with her brother having been dead for four days, Martha makes some amazing statements here. In my view... I mean, maybe you read it a little differently than I do, but in my view, she says, I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Even now? Oh, that's a big statement for someone who's never seen someone rise from the dead. She's got this hope, and, and she says, I believe you're the Christ. You're the Son of God who's come into the world. I look at this statement here, and to me, this looks like a blank check of faith that she just wrote and just said, you know what? I believe you can do anything. I mean, if you really are the Son of God, there's nothing that is too difficult for you. Now, even in the midst of this acknowledgement and in the midst of this profession of faith in who Christ was, it didn't take away the emotional pain that she was going through, and it didn't take away the struggle. And I think that's important for us to remember, and it's important for us to acknowledge that that's okay, that we're still human, and we still wrestle with these questions, and we still have doubts. And Jesus is very patient with her, and He's very kind in the way that He, that he relates to and talks to Martha in this passage. There was another scenario, another question that Jesus asked in the New Testament, and He was having a discussion with some people who were questioning the resurrection. And, and these people were a group of people who were religious teachers. They were, 
they were religious leaders, and they were called Sadducees, and they denied the doctrine of the resurrection. And they were always trying to create these logical word games to try to trap Jesus and sort of show him that his view in the resurrection was wrong. And Jesus asked them a question related to the resurrection, just like he asks Martha a question. He asks Martha the question, do you believe this? But there's a tenderness here with Martha. He realizes she's struggling with real doubts, with real pain, with real loss, with real emotional grief. And he's merciful to Martha, and he's kind in the way that he relates to her. The Sadducees, on the other hand, are coming from a very different place. They're coming from a place of skepticism. They're coming from a place of unbelief. They're coming from a place of of religious pride. And the question that Jesus asks them is, he says, are you not in error? Are you not in error? Because you know neither the power of God nor the Scriptures. He rebukes them. Because these are people who are not operating in true faith and yet still struggling with emotional doubt. These are people who are tied up in their own conceit, and they have been driven to skepticism and cynicism. And so Jesus responds to them with a fairly harsh rebuke. And I love how Jesus seemed to know how to relate to each person appropriately, according to their need. And I don't know how to do that. I'll just confess, I don't. I tend to mess up a lot of times. I think sometimes maybe I'm, I'm too harsh and too strong and too dogmatic in moments when I shouldn't be. And then in other moments, maybe I'm too soft and too accommodating. And I don't know, I, I feel like I, I probably almost always get it wrong. But I love how Jesus always gets it right. You know, Martha's struggling with this, this question, I think, of, in her mind, why didn't Jesus show up? Why didn't he show up in the middle of our pain? He knows about this situation. He could have done something about it. I mean, she's acknowledging who he is, and yet he didn't. And I think sometimes that's hard for us, isn't it? Because it's not as though, as Bible-believing evangelical Christians, we're struggling with the doctrine of the omniscience or the omnipotence of God. We, we say God knows everything and he's all powerful. He can do anything that he wants. But then there's this question of, yeah, but he didn't, right? He didn't show up. He didn't come and rescue. He didn't save the day. Why? And then what happens is this seed of doubt comes into our mind and we say, well, maybe it's because he doesn't care. Maybe it's because he's not concerned. Jesus is never late. He's never early. He's never late. He is always right on time. He's not always on our time. He's always on time. And this is where it's hard for us to understand Jesus. It's it's hard for us to understand what he's thinking and what he's doing. I mean, I skipped over a verse here, but I want to kind of go back to it of of this little passage here with with Thomas. 
uh, and the disciples, um, when you go back to verse 16, they don't really get it either. They say, Jesus, you know, like the last time you were there, these, these guys, it's pretty obvious, it's pretty plain, people are already talking, and it's public, they're trying to kill you. And now you're saying you want to go back to the very place where they were going to kill you. That doesn't seem like a good strategy. That doesn't seem like a good game plan. And Jesus says, let us go to him. And Thomas, called the twin, says, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, in the, the Greek here, uh, we don't really have a voice. You know, it's the thing that's difficult about text sometimes and emails is you don't get all the other clues of communication like tone of voice, body language, whatever. You know, this from Thomas is one of two things. This is either a phenomenal declaration of Thomas's allegiance to Christ, and he says, hey, if Jesus is going to die, we'll go die with him. It's either that. I have a hard time reading it that way, but it's because I have a twisted mind. Um, I have a very strong, dominant sarcasm gene. And um, I, I actually thought for a long time that it was, it was my spiritual gift, and then my pastor said, actually, that's, you know, we need to talk about that because that's not in the list. Uh, so, so when I read this, I read Thomas saying it, oh, great. Yeah, well, let's just all go and die with you. Yeah, sounds great. This is just what I was hoping we get to do this week. But, but I think, so I don't, know, I don't know the tone of voice in which Thomas said this, but I, I think it's clear from the passage, the disciples didn't understand this. They didn't get why Jesus is going to a place where he knows they're trying to kill him. Martha doesn't understand why Jesus didn't show up when she, she knew that he knows all things and that he could have kept her brother from dying. Why, why doesn't he show up? This is where I, I feel like you and I have to come to the place where we're willing to just write that blank check of faith and say to Jesus, as Martha does, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And then I think the most appropriate thing that we could say after that and, I'm, and I trust me, I don't say this glibly, I don't say this lightly, and I, I hope you don't interpret it that way, but is to say exactly what we just sang in that song, and it is well with my soul. That's hard. That's really, really hard to do that. And to say, whatever happens, to say with Job, even if you kill me, I'll trust you. Even if you don't heal my loved one, I trust you. Even if somehow this marriage can't be salvaged and this person walks out of my life because you can't control what other people do, I still will trust you. Even if my teenager walks away from everything they know to be true, I'm still going to trust you. Even if... I lose that career that I built my whole life around and thought that was going to be my security in my older age, and it's gone, and I can't get it back. I, I'm still going to trust you. I believe you're the Christ. You're the Son of God. You are sovereign over all things. And I am going to, by faith, believe not only that you are omniscient and that you are omnipotent, that you are all-knowing and all-powerful, 
I choose by faith to believe you are all loving and that nothing happens in my life that has not been filtered through the hands of a loving Savior. Let's continue to read. Verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man also have kept this man from dying? This is the verse 35 is the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. It's also one of the most hotly debated among commentators as far as why Jesus wept. I'm sure we've all wondered this ourselves. Some commentators believe that Jesus wept because of the unbelief of the people who were there. Some people believe that Jesus wept because Lazarus was his friend. And even though he knew he would raise Lazarus from the dead, there was still an emotional connection to Lazarus. And he felt the loss of, and the death of, of his friend. Some people believe that Jesus wept because he's emotionally identifying with those who are mourning. And the Bible does tell us to weep with those who weep and to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. And that he's identifying with them in this moment. And I know you're wondering, so which is it? It may be all of the above. I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. I think what may be more significant in this passage, in the statement, Jesus wept, is not so much why he wept, but that he wept. We're told in Hebrews that we don't have a high priest who is unable to identify with us, but we have a high priest who has endured what we have endured in our humanity and is tested in all the ways that we are tested and yet was without sin. And so, because of that, we have a very unique position that when we come to God the Father, we have an advocate before the Father. We have a high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who stands not as this distant deity somewhere out there in the universe, too unreachable, too distant, too austere for us to be able to access. No, no we have a Christ, we have a Messiah, we have a Savior who has lived our life, who has identified with us, who has felt the emotions that we feel. He knows what it feels like to experience pain, to experience loss, to have all of the emotions that we do. I'd like to suggest one other thing that may play into this. 
And that is the statement that Jesus made earlier in the text where he says, I am the resurrection and the life in verse 25. Life is not merely something that Jesus believes in, i.e., he votes pro-life. Life is who Jesus is. When we sing about the immortal God, God cannot die. That's one of the attributes of God that he can't communicate to us in our physical body, but God is eternal and he's immortal. Life is who God is. There's never been a time, as the pastor said, when God did not exist and there will never be a time when God will not exist. God is the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end. He's, he's eternal. Life is who Jesus is. And I think staring at the face of death, there is also in this dynamic a sense in which Jesus says, it's not supposed to be like this. This is not what I created you for. I didn't create you to die. I created you to live forever. This is broken. This is not supposed to happen. Why do we have death? Well, thankfully, we have Genesis, and we have Romans, and we have the rest of the Bible that tell us how we got here. The old blueback speller that they used to use in colonial education in America started out teaching children in the very beginning when they're learning the alphabet. A, letter A, in Adam's fall, we send all. This doctrine of original sin that when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the beginning, sin and death entered the world. That wasn't God's fault. That wasn't God's plan. That wasn't God's design. He didn't create us to die. He created us to be eternal. And yet our sin and our rebellion brought into the world this kind of a scenario. It's not supposed to be like this. And we all feel it. We all know it. Every time there's a diagnosis of cancer, and I don't care how old you are. I have a dear friend who just was diagnosed with cancer. And she's, a, she's a mom, and she's in her late 40s, and she's scared. She doesn't know if she's going to be able to see her kids grow up. Man, I hate that kind of thing. And there's something in me that says, it's not supposed to be like this. And so what do we do? What does the world do? The world gets mad at God. And they say, I could never worship a God who would allow something like this to happen in the world, who would allow someone like her to get a diagnosis of cancer. I could never worship a God like that. That's not a loving God. My response, when I think of those moments, I think, oh, man, how I hate sin. And hopefully it turns my heart and I say, man, how I hate my own sin. It was this very sin in your heart and my heart, this rebellion that we have against God that put Christ on the cross, that cost God the life of his son. The beauty of it, though, is that there is a, a message of hope and restoration. The end of the story is not sin. The end of the story is not death. The end of the story is what we're going to read next. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. 
Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said, said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the hope that we have as believers, and this is why though we mourn and though we weep at loss, we don't mourn and we don't weep as those who have no hope, because we know that this life, the things that happen here, and again, this sounds glib, but these are not my words, are light and momentary afflictions. That sounds glib, doesn't it? It sounds flippant. That's the, just so, in case you don't know, those are the words of the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the worst things that we experience here are light and momentary afflictions in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. The fact that all things will be healed, all things will be restored. God will wipe away every tear. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more sin. There will be no more death. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Can you confess this even on your worst day? Can you confess this in your worst tragedy? The man who wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, did so as he was in a ship passing the ocean, looking into the waters where his daughters had died in a tragic accident. How do you reconcile that? I don't think you can if in this life we have hope only. Apostle Paul says if, if that's our only hope is, is what we have for here and now, if this is it, we are of all people most miserable. I think then Albert Camus, the existentialist philosopher's question, becomes very relevant. If this is all there is, then the only real question becomes why not suicide? That's dark. I understand. That's dark. But I'm just saying, he's just thinking rationally about his worldview. I mean, Ernest Hemingway took his own life. Now, this is the reality of that hopeless, dark world apart from Christ. He says this is all there is. Go around once. Man, that's a tragic outcome. As believers, we have this hope in the gospel, hope in Jesus Christ. And we have something that Martha and Mary didn't have. We have the, the testimony of the resurrection of Lazarus. But of course, most importantly, the testimony of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That event that changed all of human history, that has defined all of our future, that has given us the opportunity to know with absolute certainty, without any doubt, without any question, that those who are in Christ will rise again, will live again, will live eternally. 
And that all the things that we've gone through in this life, somehow, somehow, they're healed. They're restored. They're made right. There's no longer brokenness. There's no longer dementia. We're whole. We're made well. Most importantly, we get to spend eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The one who loved us so much that he gave his own life for us. That we could be reconciled to God and spend eternity with him. Let's look to the Lord and pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize you asking us the same question that Jesus asked Martha those years ago. Do you believe this? And Lord, in our hearts, we want to acknowledge that maybe we don't believe it as well as we should. And Lord, maybe, maybe we struggle with doubt and, and maybe we don't understand everything and we don't know why you don't show up when we want you to. We don't know why you don't keep bad things from happening and we don't know why there's tragedy. We don't know why there's loss. We don't know why there's brokenness. We know it's because we live in a sinful and fallen world, but, but Lord, it just still hurts. It hurts. Lord, we ask you to heal our hearts. We ask you, Lord, to help us to just give you that blank check of faith. Say, Lord, even though we don't understand it, even though we don't get it, we choose by faith to acknowledge that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the resurrection. You are the life. And because you live, we will live, and all things will be made new. Thank you for this promise, in Jesus' name.